Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Dear students, especially those from my course, The Politics of Terrorism, dear colleagues, dear guests, it is a great pleasure to welcome you here this evening on behalf of the Hertie School of Governance and its newly established Center for International Security Policy. My name is Julia Muchovenek. I'm Assistant Professor for International Affairs and Security. The event tonight is a continuation of our series on frontline research on terrorism, and we launched this series not just because terrorism is one of the big issues of our times, but mostly because of a widening gap between popular perceptions about the topic on the one hand and objective, scientifically established knowledge on the other hand. In fact, um, from the perspective of someone who does research and teaching um, on political violence and terrorism, the way in which terrorism has found its way into the the debate and uh, thereby also into the policy world is often emotionally charged instead of bolstered by scientific knowledge about what we actually know about the topic. This is precisely why we try to counteract, or what we try to counteract through the lecture series Frontline Research on Terrorism, by giving prominent researchers from the field a chance to communicate their scientific findings to a wider audience and thereby reshape the debate. With this objective in mind, we are honored to welcome tonight's speaker, Dr. Thomas Heckhammer, He's currently with the Norwegian Defense Establishment, with the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment, and an adjunct professor at Oslo University. He previously held appointments at some of the most prestigious universities of the world, including Stanford, Princeton, and Harvard University. Dr. Hekema is one, if not the, academic expert on violent uh, Islamism, and a topic that is on many people's minds, but which has also at the same time remained relatively opaque to many people. He has written no less than six books on the topic, most of which were published by the most prestigious publishing house, Cambridge University Press. And he has published widely in academic journals, including the American Political Science Review and International Security. Dr. Hekema is also a scholar who takes outreach and policy advice very seriously. He has testified in the US Congress and British Parliament. He has written op-eds for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and appeared on CNN's Amanpour and Anderson Cooper shows. In short, he is extraordinarily qualified to speak to us tonight and we are honored to have him and look forward to a talk entitled The European Jihadism Wave of the 2010th Lessons and Prospects. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Thomas Heckemer. Thank you very much, Julian, for the very kind introduction and for the invitation here. Um, it's, a, it's an enormous pleasure to be here um, uh, in the, the real heart of Europe uh, and to talk about a, a European topic. So I, I wanted to talk about um, what I've called the, the European jihadism wave of the 2010s, by which I mean basically the, the foreign fighter flow that we saw and the and the terrorist activity that we've seen here over the past sort of five, six um, years. I'm going to try, and to try to explain why it happened and what lessons we can 
draw from it. And my, my, sort of, my main message is that Europe comes out of this experience both wiser and stronger uh, than before it. But first I want to take you back to a bygone age, to the year 2011. Uh, it seems a long, long time now. It was pre-Trump, pre-Brexit, pre-refugee crisis, pre-Syria war. Um, and in terms of counterterrorism, it was a time of optimism. Uh, Osama bin Laden, had, he was killed that uh, spring. Uh, and Al-Qaeda seemed weaker than ever. The Arab Spring was unfolding, and um, people were thinking that this would, this would take away some of the root causes, uh, authoritarianism in, <clears throat> in, the, um, in the Muslim world. Some of the big hotspots of the 2000s, like the Iraq War, were, were quieter. And America, under Obama, was leaning out of the uh, Muslim world and, and famously sort of pivoting to, to Asia. And in 2011, here in Europe, there had been several years uh, since the last major terrorist attacks, the last major one then being London 2005. So it basically seemed to many that the, sort of the war on terror was finally coming to an end after a whole decade, decade of, uh, of tensions. But of course, instead, we got the exact opposite. We got a massive increase in jihadi activity worldwide. And here in Europe, we got, a, as I mentioned, a, a veritable wave. And it's a wave of, I would say, historic proportions. So over the next five to six years, so 2012 to 2017, over, as you know, over 5,000 European Muslims went as foreign fighters to Syria, which is five times more than the total number of European Islamist foreign fighters to all previous foreign fighter destinations combined. And from 2015 to 2017, over 350 people were killed in, in Islamist terrorist attacks in Europe, which is more than the number of people killed in similar attacks in all previous years combined since the early 90s when these attacks started happening. Um, and we've seen in response a uh, remarkable sort of set of countermeasures, many of which are so harsh that um, they would, I, th I think they would be unthinkable if they had been proposed sort of five or six years ago. We have um, you know, systematic censorship of the internet, we have deportations of troublesome imams and other suspected uh, radicals. We have people being stripped of citizenship in the hundreds. Um, we have closure of mosques, especially in France and, and Austria. Um, and some countries have even sent their special forces to Iraq to kill their own citizens suspected of fighting with Islamic State. If anyone had told me that these measures would be, had told me back in 2011 that these measures would be in place a few, a few years on, I would not have, have believed them, but it, but it has happened. And so the whole story is no less than, than remarkable. And it raises the famous academic research question, what the hell happened? 
Um, and what I want to do today is to just give you my version or, or my take on this, on this question. And I'm doing it now because I think things have started to calm down and we are in a position to start uh, getting, start digesting it. So we're getting a little bit more historical distance to the, the phenomenon. As you, as you know, there's been a lot of um, academic research on foreign fighters and jihadism more generally in the past few years, but much of this has uh, described um, the phenomenon sort of as it un unfolded. Um, and by the way, this reflects a, a general challenge in the terrorism studies field, that, that, that there's so much stuff going on that people working in it are struggling to keep up with the latest developments, and there's little time for digestion, for, for, for leaning back and taking a look at data from three, five, seven years ago and, 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 and reflect on what this really meant. So this, um, this, this um, paper of mine is, uh, is an attempt at, at uh, digestion. It's, of course, an important exercise because we are right now, I think, at a point of uncertainty, great uncertainty about how the threat will evolve uh, going forward. And we can really not afford another wave of a, on a similar scale because we've, we've seen what it can lead to. I'm not talking, actually, mainly about the the human toll, even though it is serious enough in itself. And bear in mind that for each death, there are many more people maimed and wounded in these attacks. And for each foreign fighter, there's a family left behind, or often a child accompanying the foreign fighter into the war zone. Um, but I'm thinking more about the, since we're in a policy school and we're thinking about the broader political picture, there are some real serious implications from waves of, of violence like, like this. There's the, of course, the, the loss of civil liberties that come with the harsh, that come with harsh counterterrorism. There is uh, the strain on trust, especially inter-ethnic trust, as I, I'm personally persuaded that uh, jihadi terrorism contributes significantly to Islam, the rise of Islamophobia and uh, other forms of, of, of racism. And I think this is less certain, but I, I think a case can be made that the, that the terrorism we had here in the, in the mid-2010s contributed or played into the rise of the populist right uh, that we've, we have, we've seen. And finally, of course, there's the economic cost of all this. Uh, we're, talking, uh, we're talking billions of euros uh, if we add up all of the um, investment in intel intelligence services, in kind of prevention programs, in the warfare in Iraq and Syria, and, 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 and more. Um, so, and, and, and these billions of euros could have been spent on other things. It's a huge opportunity cost, cost here. So um, from here, I'm going to basically proceed in four steps. I'll 
first uh, talk about why the, the, the wave happened, then about um, why it declined, and then uh, what to expect going forward, and finally, uh, what I see as the main lessons from the whole thing. But I, I need to say a few things first about the terminology, uh, just so we're on the same page and there are no misunderstandings. I, I use, as you've heard, the term jihadism a, a lot, and I use it to denote violent activism legitimized with reference to Islam. And I and many others use it because we need a term to describe this particular type of militancy as distinct from other types of militancy, say that of the far right or the far left or, or so on. We need a descriptor. And I'm very aware that in Islam, jihad is a contested term and that many Muslims associate this term with either a nonviolent struggle or clean warfare, or at least cleaner warfare than, than what Al-Qaeda and their ilk are, are, are involved in. Uh, so, so often people object to this, but I would argue that we need, we need a label, we need some kind of descriptive label for this, and there are really no good alternatives, and that's why it is widely used, including in, the, uh, in Arab language uh, media. Same thing with Islamism, which I define as basically political activism legitimized with reference to Islam. Uh, and here again, I see it as a descriptive term that, that has no kind of bearing on the normative th sort of theological debate about what Islam is really about. I'm going to be using the term Islamic State uh, rather than a term like Daesh, which many people uh, uh, object to. And I do this not because I endorse the group's claim to uh, being Islamic, because, but because, simply because there is a, an age-old convention in most Western languages of using the, 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 the self-descriptor of the groups in question. So we, 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 speak of, um, uh, uh, we speak of East Germany as DDR, even though you know, it doesn't mean that it is democratic, or we speak of the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, and nobody really thinks it is the Lord's resistance army. So we can do the same with Islamic State. Um, I'll speak about foreign fighters, by which I mean basically ideologically motivated uh, joining of conflicts uh, in a country that is not one's own. Um, and I'll also be talk using the terms plotters and attackers uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, so. Uh, foreign fighters have to be distinguished from plotters and attackers uh, in that in the, the latter are operating on European soil. Um, and I also distinguish between pl plots and attacks. Um, and that is because in Europe and other sort of high repression contexts, uh, only a small proportion of plots actually uh, get carried out. And that's because of all of the countermeasures that are in place, uh, the police, the work of the police and the intelligence service. So, uh, and, it, um, 
a common misunderstanding in terrorism analysis is, is that you can infer the threat from the, from the number and type of, of actual attacks. But this is, a, this is a fallacy, at least if you're going to use the inference to calibrate police intervention, because what gets executed is just sort of the net production of violence. You need to, to understand the threat, you need to look at the gross production of violence, which is the things that the militants are trying to do. And then, so, so these are the plots. So plots minus the police work <laughs> equals executed attacks. And you have to take into account all of the work that this what we call an intervening variable of, of police. But we'll come back later, I think, to, to why this distinction is important when we're discussing the threat of, kind of returning uh, foreign fighters and so on. But before we delve into the specifics of the, the, the wave, I just want to go a little bit back in time. Uh, we need a little bit of historical background here because obviously um, jihadism didn't begin, European jihadism didn't begin in the 2010s. Um, the, the phenomenon has basically been around since the 1980s uh, in, in three main forms, um, foreign fighting, um, support activity for groups uh, in the Muslim world, and the third type, attacks on European soil. And these types of activity have slightly different histories. So the foreign fighting started first in the 1980s uh, with Afghanistan and later continued through the, throughout the 90s, uh, 2000s until today to various new places. In the 90s, it was Bosnia, Chechnya, Kashmir, Afghanistan. In the 2000s, it was, it was Iraq, Somalia, etc. Um, the support activity has been going on for just as long, since the 1980s, and con has continued all along until today. Um, and uh, often, the foreign fighters come from the same networks that provide the support activity, in part because uh, for these activists, foreign fighting is perceived as uh, an act of charity. It's an act of support, of help. It's, the, the people don't go to kill, they go to help their suffering Muslim brothers abroad. The attacks, on the other hand, started a little, little bit later, in the mid-1990s. Um, the first wave of attacks was you had in France and Belgium, basically when the GIA, the Algerian militant group, sought to punish France for its support to the Algerian uh, regime. Later on, you get a sort of second wave in the kind of first half of the, of the 2000s, which is linked to and inspired by Al-Qaeda. Uh, and most of the major plots, at least in this period, are linked to Al-Qaeda in, in, in some, some way. And many of the plotters, or the, the people involved, they had trained in Al-Qaeda camps either in Afghanistan before 9-11 or uh, in uh, the Pakistani tribal areas uh, after 9-11. But by the mid-2000s, most of these Al-Qaeda networks in Europe had been identified and largely dismantled. And it, due to basically counterterrorism, new laws, etc., it became, it became much harder uh, to 
provide direct support to um, Al-Qaeda and similar groups uh, the way it had been in, in, in the past. So in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were communities like, for example, around in, in, fin the, around in the Finsbury Park Mosque in London and in other places where people were providing fairly, that would be what we would consider today fairly blatant um, support for Al-Qaeda. And people were sending money straight to, you know, middlemen and for, just pass on to... <coughs> To, to Al Qaeda Central and so and so on. This that sort of old school uh, support work was no longer possible in the mid two thousands, um, uh, and and the, and the security services kind of they had learned they had gotten a good sense of the lay of the land and and uh, and as a result of this there is a dip in uh, plotting activity in Europe in the second half of the two thousands. Al-Qaeda is weakened both uh, in, in, in Pakistan and here in, in, in Europe. And this dip, of course, is part of the uh, reason for this optimism uh, in 2011 that I described earlier. So here we are in 2011, that's sort of the start of my causal story. Um, the first thing I want to say here is that what I have called the jihadism wave isn't one thing. Uh, it's really a kind of a sequence of partially overlapping uh, but distinct phenomena. Um, you can parse it in different ways, but at the very least, uh, we're dealing with two different things. Uh, first, a foreign fighter mobilization to Syria, um, which starts in really in 2012 and continues through 2016 and then stops quite abruptly. Um, and the second thing is the wave of attacks in Europe, which uh, really only starts in 2015 uh, and continues uh, to this day, although as we come back to a little lower pace uh, in the past year. And we have to analytically deal with these separately. They have separate uh, causes. So first, the foreign fighter um, phenomenon. Why did so many Europeans travel to, to Syria? Note here that I'm talking at the movement level and not at the individual level. So there's a, a lot of research, as I'm sure you're aware of, a lot of research on the individual level and why people chose to go to Syria or why certain why some people and not others went to Syria. Um, but that's not my concern here. I'm, I'm after why the overall number of foreign fighters became so large in this period. Um, and my view is that there were four fundamental reasons for this. The first is that there was in 2011 uh, sort of a built-up reservoir of willing recruits. And here we have to go back a little bit in time again to say that when I, when I said that there was a dip in activity as a quiet period in the late 2000s. Uh, but that was only on the surface because something very important had happened behind the scenes in the late 2000s. And that's what I, that, that was the, the rise of what we call 
gateway groups. And these are, based, these are organizations that, that were very radical in their rhetoric, openly pro-Al-Qaeda, celebrating when, an, when a terrorist attack happened in, in the West, but that they that who themselves avoided activities that could get them into trouble with the law. So they avoided, the, sort of the, the, uh, first of all, they obviously avoided you know, plotting and they, they avoided um, direct dealings with, with, uh, with terrorist groups. And they basically were a classic case of adaptation. Uh, adaptation to a new sort of, uh, to new constraints, to new legal landscape. Uh, in this case, the, the sort of the, the repression uh, of the of, of the mid two thousands, and the, this phenomenon of gateway groups started in the UK with uh, Al Muhajirun, and from there the sort of model spread to uh, several other countries in in Europe, um, and, and so between two thousand and nine and two thousand and eleven, you see gateway groups popping up all over. Um, Sharia for Belgium in Belgium, Fursan for al-Ezza in France, the Prophet's Omar in Norway, the Call to Islam in Denmark, and so on and so forth. Um, the thing is that these groups attracted substantial numbers of people, like hundreds uh, each. And, uh, um, and they did this partly because... Um, these groups could recruit openly because they were legal organizations. So they, had, they were doing street dawah and they were present at demonstrations. They had a high profile in Norway. They, the Prophet's Ummah did press conferences um, and so on. Uh, but I think they also attracted people because there was a whole new generation of European Islamists who were sympathetic to Al-Qaeda's ideas but hadn't had the chance to participate in, sort of in the action of the early 2000s or, or late 90s. So the point is, even though there are few attacks in this sort of 2008-2012 period, the radical Islamist in, in movement in Europe is actually growing substantially. It's just not registering uh, on, sort of, on the attack radar. Then, when the Syria war breaks out, all these groups uh, are on the ascendant. ascendant. Like 2012 is probably the peak of most of these, uh, the, the, these groups. And they seize on the anti-Assad rebellion, uh, full, full throttle. This sort of becomes their struggle. This is sort of the, 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 the jihadist cause of their generation. And they are very active uh, Early on, in spreading footage uh, from uh, from Syria, um, they celebrate uh, the emergence of the kind of the first proper jihadi organization in the Syrian field, the Jabhat al-Nusra, and they become first movers in the foreign fighter mobilization. And in 2012-2013, they effectively become recruitment machines for Syria. Uh, and we know now uh, uh, that the majority of Europeans who went in this early period had some kind of connection to these to these gateway groups. The second main factor was the character of the Syria 
insurgency itself. Uh, and the point here is that Syria was different from other foreign fighter destinations in a number of respects. First of all, it was extremely bloody uh, from the from the beginning, and uh, this all these atrocities were projected uh, by to, to to the outside world um, through a variety of, of of ways through the TV, but also through the through the internet, and there, it was probably the most the, the best reported. One of, the, one of the best, kind of medi highest mediated uh, conflicts uh, uh, thus far in, in, in history. So very, very bloody, very visible. Secondly, and perhaps most important of all, uh, the rebellion enjoyed widespread state support. Um, now, today, uh, after all that ISIS has done, or Islamic State has done, um, we kind of think, well, it was obvious, you know, uh, this was a radical uh, insurgency from the start. But no, if you go back and look at, still think back on kind of what people were saying about the Syrian war and what newspaper commentators were saying, even here in Europe in 2011-12, there was a lot of support for the Syrian rebels. Um, and it goes not for just for the for Europe and the West, but for much of the Middle East as well, bar Iran, of course. Um, and um, so, and in in, in 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 most countries, there were no there were no laws against foreign fighting, and nobody was there was there was no kind of political uh, kind of will to impose new laws to prevent people from helping. What everybody thought was a legitimate uprising and uh, and a rebellion that that many countries themselves supported materially in various ways so um, there were basically no barriers to people who wanted to go to Syria especially in the early years um, the third uh, characteristic of Syria is, is more geographic that it's closer to Europe than say Afghanistan um, and that rebels held territory right inside the border with Turkey. So um, uh, this, this made it much easier to travel there because rebels held one side of the border posts. Um, and on the other side, you had the Turks who were quite happy to see people go into, into Syria. So this is a very different situation from what you have in, say, uh, Afghanistan uh, or Somalia in the 2000s or Chechnya uh, in, in, in the 90s, uh, which were much less easily accessible uh, destinations. Um, then you have other reasons, other factors too. I mean, some people highlight the, the place of, kind of Syria or, or, or the Levant in the Islamic eschatology, the kind of historical legacy of the Muslim Brotherhood's struggle against the Assad regime, and so on. But, and these probably have you know, factored in a little bit, but, I, but these kind of more material factors I mentioned, I think, were, were, were more significant. The third factor for the behind the foreign fighter mobilization, which in itself is a product of the Syria war, and that is the rise of Islamic State, um, which I think changed the dynamic of the foreign fighter uh, recruitment. Uh, I'm not going to linger on Islamic State because so much has been said about it um, or, or already, but I just want to 
stress that Islamic State came on the scene sort of, well, from 2013, really, but, but of course in 2014 with, the, in, with the, the announcing of the caliphate, it came on the scene with a new recruitment message. Um, so the main sort of, put very simply, the, the recruitment message for foreign fighters in, in Syria pre-2014 was you have to go and help the suffering Syrian people. They are your brothers and sisters and they're suffering. This was the classic foreign fighter, so Islamist foreign fighter message. This was, the, 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 in a nutshell, the rationale for all previous foreign fighter trips. In, uh, um, but the Islamic State came along and, and with, with something different. They said, um, not only is there a, a suffering Syrian people here, but we also have this caliphate, this great, this perfect state uh, that we've all been waiting for, and we are implementing it now, and we want you to come here and join it, help build it. And uh, you, can be, you can be remembered for your, you know, as a pioneer uh, in this historic uh, effort. And you see this in the declared uh, motivations of the foreign fighters. The, 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 the content shifts, so people start leaving saying that they want to join the new state, they want to help to build the new state. And, they, and many of them say uh, that they, they're absolutely convinced uh, that this state is going to survive and that they are leaving Europe for good uh, to, um, uh, to set up an entirely new life. People, uh, people uh, sell all their belongings uh, here in, 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 in Europe they, and they bring their wives in wives and kids, and they, and they go to, to, to Syria. Um, uh, a, a new type of dynamic. And, and, and clearly, um, and of course, this message is amplified by an enormously efficient uh, propaganda apparatus, uh, which uh, uh, basically is responsible for the bulk of the foreign fighters who went. It's in 2014-15 that you really get the large... Um, numbers. The fourth key factor behind the rise of the behind, behind the, the foreign fighter uh, flow was uh, the social media revolution, or what I have called in one of my articles the the digital empowerment revolution of the early 2010s. And this is an exogenous uh, factor. Um, it happens for a variety of more sort of technical uh, business reasons that in the early, around 2010, you, you get a range of new platforms uh, that uh, for a variety of reasons, that we, I don't have time to go into here, but that, that become, that, that basically that, that provide clan, uh, terrorists with um, more freedom online. In the 2000s, Al-Qaeda and others were struggling to use the internet effectively because the state surveillance was so strong and they, were, uh, they had few good ways to reach large numbers of people. They were relying mainly on these sort of jihadi forums, but you had to know where those forums were to go there to access the propaganda. Um, and the risk of being intercepted and tracked down and arrested was much higher in the 2000s. But in the 2010s, uh, 
due to uh, the, the rise of, kind of new platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and and all the rest, and the, and the, the sheer number of, of, of platforms, it became much more difficult for intelligence services to track jihadists online. And so people just basically got away with a whole lot more online in the early 2010s than before. Um, uh, this is what I mean by the digital empowerment. Um, and so the internet became uh, a much more powerful tool of propaganda and recruitment uh, than it had been just a few years previously. Um, there are two main kind of mechanisms here. One is simply it allowed for scaling of propaganda. So, so if you remember, some of you may have been working in this field back then, but in sort of 2013-14, there was so much jihadi propaganda online, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, everywhere, that you, um, I think if you were young Muslims in Europe at the time, you would have had a hard time avoiding, at one point, being exposed to some of this material. Um, and the second mechanism, which was, I think, crucial for the foreign fighting was is what I call the bridgehead effect, whereby early movers, the early foreign fighters, communicate with their friends at home on a daily basis, almost uh, through Facebook or WhatsApp or other other platforms. This is something we had never seen before in previous foreign fighter mobilizations. Um, if if you were a foreign fighter in Waziristan in two thousand and seven, I. Uh, and you had tried to use the internet to, to write reg back regularly to your buddies, you would have got a drone in your head within, within weeks. Um, whereas in, in Syria, almost, I mean, you could do this uh, quite freely. And of course, this has the effect on the people of home of reducing kind of uh, what we call in some social science terms, reducing the information problem. Uh, you, you, you learn more about the risks involved, and you know, maybe some of your fears and risks were exaggerated. You get a you know, clearer picture of what, ex what, what to expect, exactly how to proceed to get there, and so on. Um, so this sort of bridgehead effect was only made possible by this, uh, these digital tools. Now to the second dimension of the, the jihad, of the, of the, of the jihadism wave, the, namely the attacks. And this is much easier to, to explain, don't need to linger on it. It's basically the result of a strategic decision by Islamic State to, um, to target the West in response to the, to the Western military intervention that starts in, in the autumn of 2014. So if you remember, um, in the spring, summer of 2014, um, Islamic State kind of rises to the fore. It conducts uh, some sort of uh, basically um, uh, extreme violence against uh, certain groups in in, in Iraq. Um, it uh, beheads uh, Western journalists and so on. And the West decides to, uh, and of course, uh, and, and the group also sort of it. it um, it seizes a third of Iraq, erases the Iraqi-Syrian border, and sort of, you know, as as the first actor to do so in modern history, uh, and and so you know, major major threat to the 
order in the Middle East, and so the international community intervenes. Um, and it's, but it's, but it is. We have to be honest about it. That it is only after that intervention that uh, IS calls, you know, openly for attacks in in the West. There had been attacks in Europe or plots in Europe before, linked to Syria, um, uh, but they are much fewer uh, than what we get after. So in September 2014, uh, an IS ideologue kind of issues these call in a famous declaration and. And um, we also know now that that autumn is when the, the, the serious plotting for, for some of the big attacks in Europe started in camp, training camps in, in Syria. Um, and over the next few, uh, few years, uh, IS encourages these attacks through a variety of, of ways. It, it organizes its own kind of directed attacks. Uh, it it, it, it um, helps other plots along, what we might call sort of semi-directed attacks. And it, it's, it tries to inspire people, people with no direct link to the group, to carry out things on their own, uh, on their own in, initiative. And, 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 the, and the results I've already mentioned to you in terms of the, 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 the number of attacks and the and their casualties. I think the reason it had a big impact, the reason they were able to do this, is basically because of the sheer numbers. So there were, there were many, uh, there, were just, there were just so many uh, IS sympathizers in Europe in 2015-16 um, that it was relatively easy for them to uh, to mobilize some of them for for for, for attacks. Uh, of course, with so many, f so much foreign fighter um, mobility and so much kind of symp online sympathizer activity, the intel services were swamped. So you had basically a sort of swarming effect. Uh, intel services were supposed to you know, track potential, you know, f travelers to Syria at the same time looking for uh, potential attack cells from IS Central while spotting possible uh, self-starters, uh, uh, all the while uh, in, in, in looking at the sifting through the, 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 the refugee camps in Greece to see if there were operatives there. I mean, there's just the, the, the scale and the variety of types of threats that the services faced was just enormous. And uh, so they were overwhelmed. And, and some, some plots then came to, to execution. It's worth noting also that not only do we have many plots, but we have some very serious plots like, uh, that were what might call sort of high quality plots from a sort of terrorist from terrorist perspective. Um, uh, for example, the attack in, in Paris in November 2015 uh, coordinated uh, several attack teams, different locations. Um, and here we see, by the way, another facet of the digital empowerment revolution, namely that we see uh, jihadis incorporating digital communication tools directly into the ongoing, into the uh, not just the planning, but the execution of the attack. So we know uh, uh, that uh, Abu Oud was in direct contact. He was outside the Batla Klan theater 
speaking to the uh, his his mates inside to discuss details and uh, so um, the the sort of this sort of tech revolution had helped also the kind of the, the operational security side of of the jihadi uh, activity basically a whole range of new sort of stealth technologies that allowed for for secret communication in a, in a way that hadn't been possible before i think this also helps helps explain why for the first time in many many years in europe we saw two big strikes by one and the same cell this is not intuitive but uh, but it's such sort of double strikes have been extremely rare in in europe usually um, an attack a, a cell or a network you know they get one strike and then the state comes down on them like a ton of bricks and sort of puts them in prison and, and investigates all their links etc and that network is rendered rendered or incapable for a while um, but here you had the sort of remnant of the same cell that was, was not detected. The services were not able to spot the, the, the people who then went on to do the Brussels attack. This was rare and a symptom of this relative capability that IS had acquired, largely thanks to the, to, to, partly thanks to tech, but of course also thanks to the, to having had a base in, in Islamic State. Now to the question of why it declined. Uh, here the answer is even easier. Uh, it's countermeasures. Um, a wide array of, 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 of uh, basically hard countermeasures in, in Europe, um, ranging from uh, sort of the international community's military intervention in, in Iraq and Syria to weaken the, the, the Islamic State, to take away their territory, has been important. If we hadn't done that, I think there would have been more kind of directed plots emanating from this territory in, to the West. Uh, there's been a systematic effort to sort of block foreign fighting. Most countries in Europe now have laws against it, and foreign fighting, even attempts at foreign fighting, are prosecuted aggressively. Lots of people in prison now for having, just having tried. Um, huge investments in Intel services. Several services are 50% or twice the size they were five years ago. Um, uh, lots of arrests. The prison population, uh, so the, the, the jihadi prison population is much larger now than it was. And also a kind of a general learning process uh, that Western intelligence have, have just accumulated more and more information about the networks and have a much better vision uh, of, of kind of the, the, the threat. Um, um, and, th and this is entirely normal. What we've seen kind of with the rise and the fall is entirely normal. It happens in pretty much every kind of terrorism campaign, and it has to do with information. Uh, the reason terrorists are able to strike in the first place is that they are they have an information advantage over the state. The state doesn't know who they are and where or where they are, and that asymmetry allows them to carry out some attacks. And but over time, almost always, the state learns. It, it, it arrests one, two, three, four, five, and and uses a variety of analytical techniques to basically map the threat, finds out, they find out who they are, where they are, 
and then the abil their ability to just to strike go, goes down. And, and, and patterns like this you can see in many uh, many campaigns. Um, and I mentioned the decline. Yes, we know there has been a decline. Um, my colleague Peter Nesser, uh, who uh, he, he specializes in sort of tracking and measuring uh, jihadi plots in, in Europe. He's been doing it for, for years and has a, an extensive data set going back to the early 90s. And he sees a, a, a drop of about 50% from 2017 to 2018 in both plots and uh, attacks. Um, having said this, we shouldn't overestimate the decline. The, the, level, the, the, the number of plots in 2018 is still higher than in any year pre prior to 2015. But I think the worst is over at this uh, particular, particular time. But what about the, the, the prospects? Um, well, first of all, it's almost uh, preposterous of me to, to offer predictions, given that we have proved so terrible at prediction, predicting, given that I didn't see this coming in 2011. Uh, so, but with that uh, caveat, caveat I, I, I see, I think, we, I'm fairly certain that in the short term, so the next two, three years, we'll continue to see a decline in, in plotting activity um, because of the, the factors that I, I mentioned. Now, for the longer term, sort of five to ten years down the line, it's much more uncertain. And as some of you may know, I wrote an article two years ago called The Future of Jihadism in Europe, a Pessimistic View, in which I outlined some of the, sort of the, the macro trends that I see that could sustain a high activity level for a long period down the line, and that, that, that might help kind of a resurgence uh, f f further down the line. This includes the availability of, of uh, basically veteran activists, the people that we call, the type of people we call entrepreneurs, so the movers and shakers, the, the people who build networks and who initiate plots and so on. These people are typically veteran activists. They've spent time in prison or they've been foreign fighters, etc. And uh, my colleague Peter Nesser, again, has done research showing that most sort of attack networks, they have one such entrepreneur. Um, and then the, uh, other members of the cell kind of have different profiles and different, different um, backgrounds. But the point is that much of the, all of the activity we had in Europe in the 90s and 2000s was built on the back of a tiny number of entrepreneurs, like tens of people. Um, now we have a kind of population of potential entrepreneurs that's much, much larger if we include all the people in prison, all the returned foreign fights, etc. Now, of course, not all of those will be necessarily entrepreneurs, but even if just a proportion of them will be, there is, there is kind of rebellious energy there for more uh, activity. Another driver I saw was uh, basically an increase in the recruitment pool uh, of 
jihadi groups. We know historically that jihadi groups have recruited from um, basically uh, from among uh, young uh, Muslim men of immigrant background and of a uh, from the, the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. And this group is growing for a variety of reasons. So if we assume there will be entrepreneurs, um, and then we know that the pool from which they can recruit is, is only growing. Um, a third factor is, the, the third macro driver in that pessimistic analysis was the, the what I saw as the continued un, un, instability in the Middle East. That Looking back in history, there had been a few periods in which there was not at least a few sort of conflict zones in the region that inspired jihadis here in Europe, either uh, kind of indirectly or, or, or directly as foreign fighter destinations. And uh, I still see, kind of the, especially the, the, the Middle East, as the kind of still a fairly fragile place, and, and new conflicts could emerge uh, in almost any any. Uh, one of its countries. Um, and the fourth driver I saw back in 2016 was um, this technology factor, the, the digital empowerment uh, re revolution. Um, I'm today a little bit less pessimistic, uh, basically because the, the counter-terrorism response has been much harsher than I expected. I didn't expect European governments to react quite in this way, um, but from a, from the sort of from the point of view of, sort of activity prediction, I think that some of these measures will will help. So we, we see, for example, that there's a lot less um, freedom for for the militants online. There's less propaganda available. It's the risk of being intercepted and arrested is higher. Um, uh, foreign fighting has become much more difficult, um, and these gateway groups that I talk about have all have all been closed down in various ways. So, whoever comes along a few years online, you know, seeking to rebuild the, jihad, the European jihadi movement, faces a, di a difficult task, a situation where you know uh, it will be harder to spread the message, um, where it won't be as easy to simply leave Europe to go and get some inspiration and training in a foreign fighter zone, and where you can't you, you can't set up a, a new organization of the like of the, of the type you had in in, in the past. Um, but still, I, th I I think people are going to be are going to try. So in five to ten years, I think we'll see people trying. And if history is a guide, then these attempts will, then, then the key figures will be veterans who will assemble around them or attract younger people. Ex-convicts and ex-foreign fighters will be sort of inspirational figures. They themselves might not be directly involved in plots, etc., but they will be hubs around which new kind of networks will, will form. And I think there will be attempts to form new types of gateway groups. Um, these groups will have to be will have to operate differently. They will have to adapt again to kind of because now the kind of the, the bar of legal intervention has been lowered further, and so they have to be even more 
discrete uh, in their activities. But in some sense, I see no other way for them to you know, rebuild to you know, a substantial size without some kind of organization. And so uh, I'll be on the lookout for kind of these new types of, of, of gateway groups go, going forward. Um, and of course, there are some unknowns here, as I said, we don't know where the next big conflict is going to be in the Middle East. We also don't know what new technologies may come along and change the picture again and flip, and flip the, 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 the board so that you know, the non-state actors have an advantage again. This, this is impossible to predict. Finally, I've gone way over my time. Five lessons, as I see it. First, the jihadi movement in Europe is resilient doesn't seem to be quite like other social movements that come, grow, and then pass away within a generation. It, if we look at the jihadi movement in the Muslim world more broadly, it has lived longer than most comparable kind of radical phenomena. And in Europe alone, it has now a long history. It bounced back after what we thought was a fatal decline in the early 2000s. And so, um, we have at least to prepare for that, for the possibility that it will con continue. Second insight is that what happens here is closely tied to what happens in the Middle East. So what happened here wouldn't have happened without Syria, in some sense. And um, so, so um, this has a lot of implications uh, for predictability, um, but it does help us identify the, uh, foreign fighters as a crucial mechanism. Foreign fighters are sort of the is the is the thing that connects the f conflicts in the Muslim world and the scene back at home. It's, it's the is the tube by which expertise and inspiration and, su and, and, and such things are transferred from those conflict zones to the uh, region. And, it, and it's the is the is the, it's the uh, of, uh, yeah, the tube by which people who are in trouble here in Europe can escape and find safe haven abroad. The third is that the internet can matter. Um, and, and I think the, we, 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 we saw in the early 2010s what a kind of... Um, what the internet can do with recruitment and attack capability uh, if militants get relatively free access to it. Fourth, that there must be a malaise in the, uh, among Muslim youth in Europe. Uh, and the the, the, the very fact that so many people uh, went to Syria and the stories that they have told uh, about why they went and so on, um, and the profiles that we see that they have suggest that there is something uh, not right um, and that the security responses that I've described is only a short-term solution. It's only a... Uh, it's a, it basically kind of securitizes our society, but doesn't deal with the root uh, root issues. Final lesson, and I think the most important for me, um, 
is that it's, it's taught us an important thing about ourselves, I mean, about Europe. It's shown, in my view, that Europe is strong in the face of security challenges. Europe will act if it is threatened. And I say this because if you go back to 2015-16, there was a lot of rhetoric, especially in the US and from, from the from conservative circles here in, in Europe, about how Europe was doomed, uh, there was the, the, the radicalization troubles were intractable, uh, Europe couldn't get its act together, soft on terrorism, all this, all this sort of thing. Um, but uh, Europe has actually gotten a hand over this, this problem. So it's, Europe isn't as weak as some people have, have suggested. Now, the flip side of this is, of course, that um, Europe is also more pragmatic and perhaps less idealistic than some people like like to, to, to think. So to me, this whole story shows that when push really comes to shove, shove, these ideals about human rights and civil liberty, etc., give way uh, to good old-fashioned sort of state uh, security uh, pri pri priorities. And I, I mean, if you. If we think back to the 2000s and, and sort of and the, and the regularity with which Europeans criticized the Bush administration uh, for the war on terror, etc., you know, the attitude was, I'm caricaturing, but the attitude was basically, you're too brutal, you're, you're, you don't understand human rights, look at us, we deal with terrorism in a much more balanced, careful way, and we're, we, in, in a sort of cleaner way. Now, come 2017-18, Europe is doing stuff that, had America done them in the 2000s, they would have elicited serious criticism, I think. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mixed, I think, insight here about, um, about Europe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.